This is the Bureau of Lost Culture. He was a zealot type, a fool, a trickster, a black magician, a charlatan, a genius, a fabulist, a guru, a junkie, an alcoholic, a secret agent, a police informer, a disruptor, sex man apparently, though he didn't understand love, psychopath. Nope, that's not me, I'm Stephen Coates, and it's not our guest, Andy Roberts, psychedelic historian. It is Michael Hollingshead. This is the second part of a psychedelic trip through the life of the man who turned Timothy Leary onto acid. The man who turned on the world, as he immodestly described himself, but we will know him in this episode as the Divine Rascal, and that's the name of Andy Roberts' biography of Michael Hollingshead. A wonderful read is available on Strange Attractor Press. Michael Hollingshead, born in the industrial north of England in the town of Darlington. An abusive childhood, but transformed himself miraculously through his teenage and early 20s into a character who was to go on to make psychedelic history. After his time in England as a young man, he ended up in New York, where he became one of the first people, and certainly one of the first English people, to use, abuse, acid, LSD. This is in the early 60s. He went on to turn on various people and ended up meeting Timothy Leary. And after threatening to commit suicide, if Louis did not meet him again, he managed to end up as his kind of babysitter, factotum, secretary living in the top floor of his house with a mayonnaise jar full of acid, which he doled out to anybody who was keen, eager, foolish enough to accept. And eventually, after some reluctance on Leary's part, he persuaded Tim Leary to take it himself. And Leary's mind was completely blown. And American social history, psychedelic history, world history possibly, was changed, transformed, part of the great psychedelic wave, the great countercultural wave which swept across America east to west. And of course, swept across the lands in this side of the Atlantic too. And we left Michael Hollingshead and Andy as Hollingshead himself was on a boat across the Atlantic back to these shores, sent by Leary. Uh, possibly to just get rid of him, he was a very difficult character and we're going to find out much more about the rascal side of his character in this episode. But apparently, really, ostensibly, to create a psychedelic beachhead in London, that was the idea, uh, where Leary would come and join him after a certain amount of time and carry on bringing the good work, the good acid work, preaching the acid religion to the denizens of this country and of Europe. And what we'll hear, Hollingshead is about to set up something called the World Psychedelic Centre in 25 Pont Street in Chelsea. So, Andy, welcome back to the Bureau of Lost Culture for part two. Hi there. We left Hollingshead on that boat crossing the Atlantic from New York to London, carrying with him lots of acid and copies of the Tibetan Book of the Dead and various other uh, psychedelic paraphernalia. What happened when he got here? Hollingshead landed in Southampton. He was picked up at, at the docks by his uh, millionaire friend, Desmond O'Brien, um, who'd been across to America a few times to see him. Um, and 
Desmond O'Brien took him to London, uh, put him up in a hotel for a few weeks, paid all his expenses, um, and um, there are letters between Leary and Hollingshead where Hollingshead is, is saying he can't believe how fantastic Desmond O'Brien is because um, he has access to loads of drugs, he has uh, dolly birds visiting him three or four at a time, you know, he was living the high life and, and he was going to fund the World Psychedelic Centre in London, which Leary was very pleased about. And so it came to pass in late 65, uh, just before Christmas, um, Desmond O'Brien signed a lease on a flat at 24 Pont Street, um, which I think was a second floor uh, flat, and that became known as the World Psychedelic Centre. Hollingshead moved in and it was all decked out with, you know, the usual posters, lush carpets, fantastic sound systems, and it was going to be a, a place to trip in. And um, Hollingshead, uh, in his autobiography, writes about trips there which were very, very structured with, you know, done exactly as Leary uh, talked about it. And he was putting out pamphlets to uh, London's... Um, psychedelic community that already existed sort of saying you know this is how it should be done blah 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 now i've interviewed several people who were already practicing acid heads in, in britain in the sort of 63 64 65 time and they didn't want that they, they weren't interested in it they were into acid in their own way um it was a bit psych a bit um, spiritual and religious but basically a lot of people were just doing it for a lot of cosmic fun you know it was just amazing to, to do it was an amazing experience um, and they resented it a little bit and um, Hollingshead couldn't really get his head around this until he met uh, a guy called uh, Joey Mellon who uh, is better known as being uh, the partner of Amanda Fielding who was the first person in Britain to uh, self-trepan herself i.e drill a hole in her skull which was led to uh, supposed to raise uh, consciousness um right i mean i've met joey a very very nice guy he trepanned himself too and wrote the book borehole about it also published by strange attractor i think um but let's go back to o'brien a moment so i've got a photograph of him here in front of me and uh, very urbane british looking you know posh Lloyd's underwriter, as you say, old Etonian, you know, with his cigarette and his tie. Not the sort of typical psychedelic character, you know, you'd think, really. A strange companion, possibly, for Hollingshead. But there they are. They've got this place, the Psychedelic Centre, in uh, Belgravia, in Pont Street. Posh address, very posh address now. And here is what Hollingshead said about it uh, in his autobiography, hagiography as you call it. I became the leaseholder of a large, comfortable Chelsea flat. With high ceilings and thick walls, it was here we opened the World Psychedelic Centre with Desmond O'Brien and later Joey Mellon, as you mentioned. Also ex-Eton and a graduate from law as its vice president. We had lots of cushions, some excellent tapes and hi-fi equipment, a slide projector and several chillums. We began shortly before midnight moving into the new temple room with a kind of piety and seriousness you find in acts of faith. When we all took our place in the magic circle of liberation, after a short silence we passed around the bowl containing grapes impregnated with acid, about 300 micrograms or what's considered to be a relatively high dosage, likely to last from between 8 to 12 hours. The sympathetic discharge would follow in about 40 minutes. I assume by that he means you start to feel the effects, right? Um, indicated by enlarged pupils, rising body temperature, increased heart rate, variable blood pressure and sometimes a moderate amount of physical trembling. I love this line. Yet they are no stronger on the body than the effects of a game of tennis. <laughs> Only thinking makes them so. I love that. <laughs> I play tennis. I don't, 
I don't quite get that comparison. Uh, the writing goes on, it gets uh, more and more sort of florid and cosmic. And they start reading from the Tibetan Book of the Dead. He's talking about this this snake uncoiling, you know, it feels like you're a snake going and crawling into a hollow tube, gathering in force and intensity. But it is all quite formal and planned and leery-like, I suppose. And I think what you were saying earlier about that for the Brits, they're a bit more like Ken Casey in a way. They were like, hey, this thing's cool, and it, you know, you see loads of weird stuff, and it's fun, let's just do that. We don't necessarily want somebody coming in telling us how we've got to do it. Yeah, I think a, a lot of the early um, acid users in Britain were spiritual and religious, but not in that formal way, where, whereas Leary was sort of very insistent about it. And he was also very insistent about, you know, you must fast for a day before and everything. Now, um, a lot of the British people have said, well, no, why would you do that? Because all that, that means is you're going into a trip extremely hungry with low blood sugar and you know, you could quite easily freak out. And it was uh, Joey Mellon who, you know, sort of uh, had introduced the idea via his mentor, the um, Dutch guy, Bart Hoogers, who was the first person to um, to start trepanation, that you should take uh, a lot of sugar when you were taking LSD and that, that stopped you freaking out. And um, slowly... Is that true, Andy? Is that, as a sort of technical point, I had this in my notes here, just to ask you, because I know you know this stuff. Is that uh, is that the way to avoid a bad trip, is to have, a, as you say, have a Mars bar? It certainly helps. And, and I mean, you know, when I was a teenager, the, the people, the older people I hung around with always used to insist that I ate lots of sugar whilst, uh, whilst we were tripping and it, it seemed to sort of work. I, I, I'm not a scientist, so I don't know the, you know, the chemistry of it all, but it became an accepted uh, thing. And also basically just sucking on a barley sugar when you're tripping gives you something to do and it can take your mind off anything bad that might be happening. Mm. But, you know, I think keeping your blood sugar up is a good idea because even when you're not high, if your blood sugar is low, you can get very jittery, very agitated agitated and, and things can start to fall apart so you know add 300 micrograms of good lsd to it and you're you know you're in a hiding to nothing so hollingshead slowly took up that idea and and had bowls of sweets all around his flat so that people you know could um, and, and fruits so they could take oranges and, and so on and so forth um and so what happened over about two or three months was that it was a, a really interesting place there were lots of people coming to the world psychedelic center hollingshead gives a list of them in his autobiography uh, you know and he includes famous people like donovan and, and um, uh, lots of other famous people some of those people went some of them didn't paul mccartney certainly went and uh, paul mccartney's um i can't remember who was with him but one of paul mccartney's friends was with him and tried to drag him away because he thought paul was being brainwashed by hollingshead's uh, blood sugar idea and hollingshead had these charts up on the wall showing about um, you know how how change your blood sugar helped you stay high and helped you not get a bad trip and so on and so forth so there were lots of lots of visitors but also what happened was it became a bit of a party house people were turning up at all hours of day and night tumbling out of taxis tumbling back into taxis in a, in a you know a stone state of mind uh, and although you know the upper class people in that area were used to people having their own existences it became a bit of a bawdy house and it, it came to the attention of the police now in january um, 1966, Hollingshead was uh, arrested for possession of, um, I think it was cannabis and, and morphine. He didn't tell any, any of his friends about that at the time, and he was bailed to, to a date in early March. But things are spiralling out of control, to the point where, I think on the evening of, I think it's March 4th, there were six or seven people hanging out at Hollingshead's flat, Hollingshead in, included, when um, a couple of guys came in, the door was always open, and said... Uh, can we score? And Holling said, said, yeah, go in that room there and sent them into a room where Joey Mellon was. And 
Joey got out a lump of hash to, to sell them and these people revealed themselves to be policemen. Um, basically, Hollingshead had got no security measures at all. They were just far too trusting. So Hollingshead and several other people were hauled off to the police station and charged with possession of cannabis and a few other drugs, but not LSD. Mainly because, firstly, LSD wasn't illegal at that time. It wasn't a controlled drug yet, so people could possess it. But also because the police didn't know what they were looking for because it wasn't a high-profile drug. And, you know, a small... Um, thin glass bottle of clear liquid wouldn't have attracted their attention so they they missed all the acid that was there um so also i think that the significant thing about this because this is march 66 yeah and you've highlighted that that's the very month that london life which is this magazine of the sort of swinging 60s um publishes this piece uh lsd and it's on the cover it's a big piece i've got it here and it's it's written by the editor he says, What I've learned of the potential of the drug LSD is frightening. The telephone threats I've received are not, and I consider it the duty of London Life to publish the following article in the public interest. Um, and it goes on, and it's a, it's a fairly substantial piece written by a journalist who've been to the Psychedelic Centre. There's an there's a extensive sort of interview with Desmond O'Brien, who, as you point out, is caught by this time is calling himself Mr. LSD. Not the probably not the best thing to do, right? <laughs> sort of hubris mixed with sort of foolhardiness, right? Um, Mr. O'Brien, 39, tanned with grey-white hair uh, and, and sort of bragging about the whole thing. The, the, the article itself is, is, is quite um, alarmist and I think, you know, you point out in the book, it's, it also seems to be the source of many of the rumours about acid, which you know, probably not true. There's this whole thing about dumping it in, you know, you could dump it in the water supply system and, you know, take out a whole city. And, and, and I think, you, you know, you point out that a lot of the prejudice or the lots of the misinformation about acid kind of starts here, right? Yes, ab absolutely. Um, I mean, basically what had happened there, by the time that the London Life article came out, Hollingshead had gone on the run because he'd skipped his, um, his court appointment and he didn't know it was going to be happening until he saw it advertised on the side of a London bus. And Hollingshead was appalled when he read it because he hadn't sanctioned uh, the, the interview. It had just happened because um, somebody had got in touch with Desmond O'Brien. Um, and as you say, it opened the floodgates for prejudice because uh, it, it, it went on about you know being able to control an entire city by putting LSD in the water supply, which you can't do. It's, that is just chemically not possible. But it's the sort of thing that gets into people's consciousness because it means that a small thing can affect a big thing, i.e. society, and people didn't like that. Um, a couple of days later, the Sunday People and the, Sun and the News of the World both ran huge spreads on um, the Pont Street flat and what was happening there, and they really, really made it sound uh, you know, like it was going to be the end of civilization as we knew it if it got out into the streets, which, which polarised the whole um, thing about LSD because... Young people reading it were reading it and thinking, yeah, we're having some of that. We're going to London town now. And it, and it really spread the word about acid round. But yet your traditional Daily Express and Daily Mail readers were, you know, sat eating their, their buttered toast in the morning and spluttering about the downfall of civilization as we know it through, you know, chemicals coming from America. So that's really what, what kicked it all off. Well, I mean, as I was saying earlier to you, the, you know, the London Life has sent this, this reporter in, Hugh Blackwell, um, you know, to the World Psychedelic Centre to, to experience it for himself. You know, quite right too, that's the way to find out about it. And, um, you know, he says, I was given the drug from an eyedropper. Uh, there were four or five middle-aged people in the room drinking tea watching me. That sounds a bit alarming. Uh, but then... <clears throat> 
he says that he was still recovering 20, 12 hours later. He said, that, I seemed to forget all the knowledge I'd ever acquired unconsciously, consciously, and I felt my subconscious released. I, I got a kaleidoscopic maelstrom of images rushing through my mind, a feeling of explosion in my brain. I felt totally out of control. There was a feeling of enormous forces of the universe pressing down on my head. I remember shouting, where's the antidote when it hit me? Uh, but then after this, it goes on to say, it's, that's all quite alarming and stuff. And then it says, but then he says, I felt I was totally telepathic. I felt like I could manipulate people, you know, use it in the right way. You could build a race of beautiful people, a whole new society, take it onto the moon and you would have the whole universe at your command. I mean, you can just imagine kids around, around Britain thinking, I want that, right? I mean, it's, it's not going to put you off, is it? Um, O'Brien, in the same article, you know, they keep going back to the fact that, you know, understandably, that he um, is an unlikely-looking acid guru. He travels frequently to the States. He says, I've taken it many times, but the last time was more than three months ago. It's not addictive. As he, he says, as he relaxes in a black silk shirt and cream cord slack, sipping a glass of whiskey. Um, <laughs> I took a leading part in, the, in, you know, he talks about it, and then um, he talks passionately about the drug and uh, he's an athletic-looking man and well-spoken. He told us that he had an associate with whom he would have to confer before answering some of our questions, such as, where do supplies of LSD come from? How much is there in Britain at the moment? How and where it is made? Can't answer those, old bean, he said with a smile, until I've discussed it with my associates. I presume the associate is Hollingshead, right? It, it would have been, yes. But 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 by that time, by the time that was published, O'Brien and Hollingshead had lost c contact completely because Hollingshead was on the run, driving around Britain, uh, trying to avoid uh, um, the court cases that, that had come up. And in the in the event, um, it got to May 1966, and Hollingshead um, skipped London completely and went to Sweden. And there's an apocryphal story that um, Scotland Yard detectives, he was arrested in Sweden on another drug charge, Scotland Yard detectives were sent to, to bring him back on, a, on an aeroplane and he managed to secrete some acid under his fingernails, which he got into their coffee whilst on the aeroplane. So when it landed at Heathrow, he just got up and walked off and they were bewildered and befuddled and he handed himself in a, a few days later after he'd you know, tied up various loose ends. So in the middle of May, he, he, he was in in court for um, for these various uh, ch possession charges and he got sentenced to um i think it was 18 months in prison and he spent but you said that he defended himself whilst yes. he was on acid yes that's what he says and i mean we've only got his word to go on for that but it's the sort of thing he would probably do because he, he was so arrogant and, and so self-assured that he probably thought that he had a better chance of defending him, himself than the um you know than any legal representation i mean it didn't work did it but but you know he tried well i mean there's people have often tried to defend themselves for various reasons which is you know, possibly foolish, but you can understand it. But then to do it on acid, that seems... I mean, it just seems like... Who would want to go in a court in Britain on acid anyway? I mean... Well, you see, that, that's a measure of, of Hollingshead's ability to deal with the acid experience, that he felt confident he could go right. into, you know, something as... as um, uh, physically and mentally oppressive uh, as you know the old Bailey, I think it was at, and um, you know, and, and put up a good show in front of the um, uh, the prosecution uh, um, uh, legal people. But in the end, he got he got sent down, and he he served 
18 months, uh, some of which was in Wormwood Scrubs. And again, in his um, autobiography, he tells this story about how George Blake, the um, the guy who was arrested for spying for, uh, for Russia, was on his wing and he turned George Blake onto acid whilst he was in there. How? By giving him acid, basically, because they had, they had free association on Sundays where they could mix uh, liberally between uh, between cells. And Hollingshead was getting acid sent in in the form of uh, injected grapes or in ballpoint pens and so on and so forth. So the, the acquisition wasn't difficult. Um, and um, he'd been telling lots of prisoners about it. And he tripped, he says, he tripped with some people there who he trusted. And George Blake heard about it and asked if he would trip with him. The trip wasn't very successful from Blake's point of view because he was a bit paranoid. Um, but, you know, if true, I think that's quite an interesting story. Absolutely. I mean, I suppose the one place that I would less be less likely to do acid than the old Bailey is actually in Wormwood Scrubs. I mean, that sounds terrifying. Um, let's just dig into his character a bit before we go on, though, um, Andy, because all this is going on. Um, you know, he's been on the run, you know, he's dosed policemen. This is, I mean, so the one part of your narrative too is that he also, he was a fabulist and a liar, so, you know, we have to sort of take his word for these exploits to some extent, so uh, some of it obviously you've verified, but um, this commitment to the drug, and it is a drug which is generally regarded as not being addictive, so not physically addictive, and yet the commitment to it, which means that he's always got it with him, he's got it, gets it sent to him, he gets it, you know, he has it on the plane, he has it in court, he takes it into prison with him, he gets it sent in. And why was he so committed to it? I mean, you know, what was it about about acid that that he had this kind of such a intense, intimate relationship? With? Um, that, that's that's hard to pin down, Stephen. Is that? But I think he just saw it as being the ultimate transformative experience that could be applied to any. Uh, situation, you know, as mundane as being in prison or in a court, or you know, out in the out in the mountains in in, in Mexico where he took it a lot, and it just changed things so fundamentally. And because he was so adept at the experience he saw himself as a guru and I think one of the things that I've tried to to get in throughout the book is that he was always in Leary's shadow I think he always wanted to become Leary and have that sort of fame and power and influence but his personality uh, fundamentally argued against it so he was sort of caught, you know, where he had to try to be this sort of acid guru, but he could never quite become a popular acid guru. So he, he craved the status and fame, possibly, that Leary had. Yes, and, and the respect and, and, you know, all the, the doors that that sort of thing opens to, to... Because he never had any money. Money was a constant source of problem in, Hol- in Hollingshead's life. He, he certainly didn't like working for money. Uh, so, he, he, you know, he wanted it to be given free, and his way of getting it free was to become involved with people with money and, you know, who would fund his experiences, which happened over the years on and off. But every now and again, he had no money at all. So he saw the sort of guru trip, if you like, as, as a way of securing a comfortable future um, during which he could do as he pleased and he'd have lots of acolytes around him. And yet, you know, you said, and you've reported that Joey Mellon had said about him, you know, that he didn't understand love. And, you know, maybe that's part of the sort of sociopathy or whatever. But, um, of course, you know... Acid became the fuel for the summers of love in the US and the UK. And of course, for many people, acid was about love, wasn't it? It was about that sense of expanded consciousness, empathy with other people, community, you know, and and transforming society through those things. And yet in many ways, he doesn't 
that wasn't part, part of his thing and maybe that's why he couldn't become somebody like Leary because he didn't sort of have that feeling. Yes, he, he definitely didn't have that side to his personality. He wrote about it intellectually as though he understood it, but his practice, his behaviour in everyday life didn't reflect that he sort of got the whole love experience. I mean, his history with women is, is quite appalling. He... To say he wasn't a particularly physically attractive man, um, he had a never-ending um, um, list of, of girlfriends and partners throughout his life. He, you know, he didn't go um, w without partners. I think people liked him because of his wit and his intelligence and, and all those things. But when people got involved with him, they saw a darker side to it. And you know, he was um, he, he could be quite violent to his first wife, who, who Sophie, who was the mother of Vanessa, and he had lots of affairs when he, when he was with her. And that pattern carried on with all his partners th throughout his life and in fact one of his partners who I won't name um, ended up in a um, what well, font of a better word a mental institution and the person that visited her there uh, found her crawling around on the floor gibbering like a snake and that was as a result of Hollingshead's uh, these days I think we'd call it coercive control he was very much into mind controlling um, the the, uh, the females that he was involved with, and there are only one or two who sort of escaped that um, that fate, if you like. Let's go back to him in Wormwood Scrubs, and of course that is the year later on that year, possibly as a result of the stuff that's gone on, possibly as a result of the article in London Life and then in the News of the World, etc. Acid in the autumn is made illegal, isn't it? Yes. And and so in some ways he got off quite lightly, didn't he? Because tw 18 months for skipping bail and getting caught with all those drugs and stuff uh, was probably quite a light sentence compared with what it could have been later, right? It, it could have been, yes, absolutely. And, and, you know, the irony is that he was in prison for the two summers of love, 1966 and So he actually missed all the, you know, the, the huge explosion on the streets, as it, as it were. But whilst he was in prison, he, he wasn't idle at all. He was writing letters every day. Uh, he was very involved with um, Joey Mellon and he was writing this sort of stage version of, um, a psychedelic version of Milton's Paradise Lost. Uh, he was generating loads of poems which he was sending to Leary which he hopes, hoped would be published um, and sort of making plans for, for when he came out. Now during this time Leary had gone cold and he hadn't sort of been writing to him I think because it was the summers of love and Leary was too busy so by the time um, uh, Hollingshead was transferred halfway through his sentence to an open prison at HMP Layhill in Gloucestershire where he um, it, it basically it was a bit like a, um, an episode of um, the old British sitcom Porridge where he was sort of pretty much in charge of, of the, the rest of the convicts there because he was very very clever he knew how to manipulate people through his cleverness so he you know he helped people write letters and he, they did him favours in return and he ended up being in the highest position of work there which was serving in the in the officer's mess so he didn't waste his time um, at all and in fact there's one uh, cartoon that he drew and sent to Leary during that time which shows him facing um, the governor at a desk and the governor's saying uh, something like um, uh, you, you, you know, you're in here for, for 18 months, you cause no trouble, we don't hear anything about you, you do everything we tell you, what's your game, Hollingshead? Um, and that, to me, is Hollingshead showing that he, he got the prison officers and warders exactly where he wanted, to the point where he used to have a square of black paper pinned on the wall in his in his cell and when people asked what that was he'd tell them that was his escape portal that he'd go through on a night <laughs> to show that prison didn't bother him at all so he came out of prison in um uh, late 67 uh it, it was broke completely he couldn't get any money from anywhere Leary wasn't interested in him at that time so he went back to um 
uh, to Scandinavia and he spent some time in Norway, uh, spent a, a month or so living in Norway where he was allegedly translating the um, Icelandic sagas um, and taking lots of acid and then he moved into Sweden, in, I think he went to Oslo where he hooked up with a, um, a woman there uh, who he basically lived off but during that time he was also involved with um, a guy called Simon Spies who was a Swedish multimillionaire and the first guy to start package holidays from Scandinavia to, to the Mediterranean. Now, Spies was also an exhibitionist, a drug taker, a pornographer and so on. And um, he used to invite uh, Hollingshead to his house, a party with all the rich and influential in, in Sweden. And they cooked up a plan whereby they said, if we give you, uh, you know, if they give Hollingshead lots of money, would he go to London and score loads of acid and bring it back? And this was a few thousand pounds. Not sure of the exact figure, but it was a lot of money. And of course, Holling said, yeah, I'll do that by all means. So in, um, I don't know, I think it was about March uh, 68, Hollingshead boarded a plane to London with several thousand pounds belonging to Simon Spies and others. And uh, guess what? He never came back. <laughs> he took the money, spent a couple of weeks in London and then flew straight to America uh, to hook up with Leary again. Right, so their uh, relationship had been healed. Just, just as a sort of side note, I mean, when you said you've been sent to get acid from, uh, from the UK... Who was making it? People were making it here, here now. Oh, by that by that time, uh, absolutely, definitely. There, there had been um, several labs operating in, in the south of England between early '66 and and onwards. And, and as an aside, this is quite interesting because uh, one of the books I'm currently writing is a history of illicit um, LSD labs in Britain. And my research has shown that an awful lot of LSD that was in America in 66 and 67 actually had its origins in Britain, which again is quite ironic. So Hollingshead knew where to get acid, whether it was from Britain uh, or in America, and had obviously fooled Simon Spies and, and said he'd come back with it, but didn't. So he heads off, to, he's left, as you say, he's missed these summers of love, uh, but he heads back to the States. And but of course, by this time, Leary is well, he's public enemy number one, isn't he? And he's kind of like he's 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 in full flow as acid guru. So what was their what was their re meeting? Their kind of or their reconciliation like? Well, by all accounts, it, it was very good. They got on really well together, and Leary invited him to go live with him in um, in San Francisco. So uh, Hollingshead flew out to San Francisco, and he was he lived with Leary there, and they went to visit all the the famous people at the time, Kesey, Jerry Garcia, and so on and so forth. And then shortly after that, they moved to the um, the Brotherhood of Eternal Loves uh, ranch in... Um, oh, I can't think of the bloody word. But the Brotherhood of Eternal Love ranch in California, where he spent uh, several months there. Um, and it, that's interesting because his experience there, which he wrote about in his autobiography, he actually admits that he, he, he took too much acid. Now, what too much acid for Hollingshead was at that period, I just can't possibly imagine but it freaked him out a little bit um, the Brotherhood of Eternal Love were constantly under surveillance by, by, the, um, by the FBI and Hollingshead was getting paranoid so he disappeared off in the late summer of 68 I think it was to the Isle of Tonga um, in the Pacific now the Isle of Tonga even these days takes a long time to get to and it's a very remote place so in the late 60s it was very far away in, indeed uh, and we don't know why he went there it's possibly he was on a scouting mission for a location for the Brotherhood of Eternal Love to move to but we're not sure he spent a few weeks there he turned on a lot of the American Peace Corps there who were doing good works and was found out by the local police and had to flee Tonga before they arrested him came back to America and in an effort to raise money, he um, 
he did some work on a, there's an experimental filmmaker called Scott Bartlett who was like one of the first Amer uh, American experimental filmmakers and he was doing um, a film in, in 1969 called Moon 1969 all about the, um, the attempts to reach the moon and Hollingshead did some work on that and provided some voiceover and you can track it down on YouTube but it's very hard to discern who's saying what. Anyway Hollingshead did that and made a few thousand dollars out of it and then because he thought, well, Leary's been to India, Albert's been, Albert's been to India, it must be the, the place to go, I'll go to Nepal. So in July 69, I think it was, the day that the Apollo rocket blasted off for the moon, he flew to Kathmandu and set up shop in Kathmandu for um, the best part of a year. And again, he wasn't just laying around smoking chillums. He, he, he was wanting to start um, a cultural centre there for, for people from the West so they could learn about uh, Nepalese culture. He'd brought loads of acid with him and he was uh, giving it to all and sundry, which caused loads of freakouts in, in, uh, in Kathmandu. Um, and it was there that he met someone who was going to be quite influential um, on his future life, um, a Polish guy called Christoph, who was a poet and uh, could speak um, Sanskrit and, and could understand Sanskrit and they together they started what is probably the first and probably only world psychedelic poetry magazine called Flow as in F-L-O-W and the first issue came out in um, in Nepal in early 70 I think it was. Um, they had many adventures in, in, in Nepal and some of Hollingshead's letters uh, talk about him going off by himself into the hills, being captured by bandits, having to fight them off using only a kettle from the fire. And and they're so fantastical that part of me wants to think, no, he's just making that up. But on the other hand, knowing what he has done for fact, I think it's very possibly true. So all these things were going on. Um, but after a while, he, he tired of, uh, of Nepal, flew back to Britain, um, and bizarrely, there's a little piece in the Daily Mail uh, in 1970, which obviously came come from Hollingshead's sort of um, idea of press promotion, saying that he was coming back to Britain and he was going to set up a centre where hippies returning from the east could chill out before they came back into um, into modern day life. That doesn't sound like a commercial venture. No, exactly. <laughs> so what, what happened then was he went to Scotland where his sister lived and met some of the local Franciscan monks there and through them, and this is a very long story short, ended up setting up an encampment in the grounds of the Cathedral of the Isles on the um, the small island of Cumbrae, which is off the west coast of um, Scotland, not too far from Glasgow. So they set up this commune basically in some in some huts and some buildings in the cathedral's grounds and the idea was that Hollingshead and the people who he attracted would work with the monks and they'd um, you know they'd grow their own vegetables and they'd, they'd have quite a, an austere ascetic uh, semi-monastic life um, which would then decompress people coming back from the east so they could re-enter sort of western society which worked for a few months until of course um, the acid started creeping in and they started having full moon ceremonies um, uh, uh, you know with the banging drums and chanting and things like that rumor has it they dosed up one of the monks who wasn't entirely happy about it and long story short on that one um, the police were involved the uh, bishop came and that I have a transcript of a tape recording uh, of, of the um, the confrontation between uh, Hollingshead's group of people and the police and the bishop where they basically were they're ordering them off the island now during his time there, uh, the the setup that Hollingshead had created was was known as the um, 
the, the Free High Church of Cumbria and various permutations on that and they had this scroll that they initiated people into and they got them really high and read out this long scroll I think which is in the book which is just basically a litany of psychedelic plants um, so all that was going on and, and chaos was, was was descending again so Hollingshead thought we've got to get out of this th this place and, and move somewhere else so they got in a van um, and they drove to London um, visited the incredible string bands commune in, in Peeblesshire on the way to no avail anyway got back to, to London but on the way back to London they stopped at a place called Hilton Hall where Steve Abrams, another very famous counterculture person, uh, was living with various other people such as Jenny Fabian and, and so on and so forth. Now there, Steve um, Abrams and someone else gave Hollingshead and the uh, communards from the Isle of Cumbrae a very, very high dose of something. Hollingshead doesn't know what it was. Nobody who took it who I spoke to know what it was. It's possible it was either um, STP, DMT, or just very strong acid. And they all freaked out and they were climbing the walls, knocking televisions over, and they thought the police was going to have to be called. But they escaped that scrape and moved to London to the house of the partner of one of the communards from Cumbrae and set up another version of that commune there up Archway in North London where they produced some more issues of um, the magazine Flow. And again at this time Hollingshead had started writing his autobiography but he didn't really write it. Christoph, his very good friend from um, who he'd met in Nepal, was actually transcribing tapes that Hollingshead had made and listening to Hollingshead talk and writing it all down with the intention that Hollingshead would just sort of finesse the end product and Hollingshead would get paid half of the advance. But this didn't come to pass because in the autumn of, I think it was 72 or 73, um, Christoph came home one day, went into Hollingshead's room, found him packing his bags and said, you know, where are you going? And he said, I'm going to America. But what about my half of the, um, you know, the advance? Mm, yeah, that's not happening. So he completely just ripped off somebody he'd been very close to for two or three years and disappeared off to America with, with, with his um, with his manuscript. This is a repeating pattern, isn't it, throughout his life? I mean, we can call it sociopathy or psychopathy. He's just really ruthlessly self-interested. He can get very close to people, but he can just dump them. Absolutely. This is the thing. His life... His life can be, all the segments of Hollingshead's life, and it's quite a picaresque life, uh, the same patterns happen over and over again. He takes people into his confidence, he extracts whatever he can from them, whether that's love, sex, money, material goods, whatever, and then just basically terminates that arrangement and moves on to something else. I mean, it's worth uh, mentioning too, comes up again and again, I'm fascinated by this myself, the way that the... The golden dream-like uh, image of late 60s, 67 in particular, 68, and, you know, fueled by acid and other drugs, and the music, the, the whole culture around it, the counterculture around it, the way that it starts to go dark in the 70s as well. Um, although, as, you know, talking to Joe Banks about Hawkwin um, a couple of weeks ago, you know, Joe was saying is that it is also the time when the a lot of the initiatives, the counterculture initiatives, the political initiatives, that you know where the counterculture actually starts to do stuff, also happens in the seventies, and that's kind of reflected in his life as well, isn't it? You know, this idea of setting up communes and you know with noble intent, you know, the the idea of you know some a place for returning hippies to kind of like you know get their shit together and grow vegetables and 
in, in you know do all that. You, you also see that in the context of the 70s about how the counterculture had evolved then hadn't it it had become more social become more political you know what i mean it had become in some ways it become more grounded and so he's part of that too um until for whatever reason he gets bored restless or some other impulse takes him and he's off again i mean he he, he just couldn't stick to it he was a restless soul a rascal you know as you as you you know divine rascal with two sides of him you know this kind of wonderful psychedelic prince in some ways but then also this kind of scammy scummy horrible abusive selfish bastard really but what next i missed a key part of his story out actually because between um, the island of Cumbria commune experience and going back to London, uh, he conjured up this, this fantastic idea for an art installation uh, in Edinburgh, which was going to be called, which was called Changes 72. Now, what this was, uh, was uh, Hollingshead and Christoph and, and many of their people on the Isle of Cumbria were very, very heavily influenced by the I Ching, you know, the, the Chinese system of divination, throwing yarrow stalks and divining the hexagrams. And Hollingshead and Christoph thought, yeah, wouldn't it be fantastic to create um, a, an art installation? where people could go and have their um, their I Ching read in a in a sort of a dramatic environment. So they got in touch with um, Ricky DiMarco, who ran the Ricky DiMarco Gallery in Edinburgh, which is a very famous art gallery, and arranged to hire a, a building for a month, um, uh, three weeks, I think it was, at the end of um, January 70. Two. Um, and what they did was they, they tricked out this building, so it had several rooms. And basically what happened was the place was called changes 72 so if you're a person coming off the street pardon me you came in and you went to the reception room and there was a, a person sat at the reception desk and they said what is your question so you asked them a question they then pressed a button and a, 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 um, a computer generated a random hexagram which um, you were given then you went into various other rooms, which were all filled with uh, mirrors, lights, strange flashing things. It was meant to be quite disorientating. And you went on this journey through this building, through several rooms, until you came into another final room at which there was um, someone, a heavily bearded uh, sort of mage, sat in a chair. And they then told you what the outcome of your hexagram was. And what he'd done, Hollingshead had got in touch with a computer firm in Newcastle. And again, this is, you know, early 70s, computers were at the very sort of start of their their um, their journey and he'd arranged for them to be able to electronically read the hexagram and come back with a printout of the of the um, of the actual you know predictions and results and the person at the end of this this room would read it out and people had their minds blown you know and there are stories of people running out into the street saying that, that i've never had such an experience in my life and that lasted for three weeks now that's just been lost in history if that had happened in say london new york or san francisco it would be one of the defining um achievements of the counterculture yet very few people know about it mainly because it was in edinburgh uh but yeah so, so sounds like there's another book in that and when you get around to it the history of psychedelic scotland would Absolutely love to read that. Um, but the seventies, so the seventies is rolling on. You know, he, the, he, he, he sort of he's done the autobiography. He's back in. He's back in the states. Things have changed quite a lot by this time. And says he's back with Leary, is he? And that their, their, their relationships kind of like comes and goes for for a while. Yes, it, it, the seventies are. Um his autobiography was published in 1973 and Hollings had had high hopes for it. He thought it was going to sort of make him, you know, like the psychedelic guru. But what he hadn't taken into consideration was that by 1973, the thrust of psychedelia w was dying, basically. You know, it was, the world was changing, you know, it was all 
fashion, glam rock, the beginnings of what became disco and cocaine culture and all that sort of thing. And basically, no one was interested and it didn't sell very many copies. And th this put him into a, into a slough of despond, for want of a, a better word. And he started getting really heavily, again, into alcohol and heroin to the point where... Um, he was a heavy addict. He moved out to... Um, he lived in um, Topanga Canyon for, for a while and he hooked up with um, um, some playwrights there and he, he became part of what became the, known as the University of Hollywood, which is sort of a virtual university that was going to be run by computers, which never really came to pass, but they had a fantastic launch party. And then he thought, what can I do? What can I do to make money and to make my name again? So he started writing for magazines and he did lots of features for magazines like um, High Times, for instance, and um, Stone Age and other um, hippie magazines in America. And he also started writing for... Um, homegrown in Britain. He was one of the, the people in at the beginning of Homegrown, which is Britain's only drug magazine, started by Lee Harris. Hollings had had some input into that and early articles. And he also started writing stuff in Omni magazine, which is the old um, science magazine, which no longer exists. Um, but every one of those things didn't really get anywhere. Um, he fell out with Omni magazine for, for reasons I could never get to the bottom of. But then, um, I think it was around sort of the um, early 80s, he started to get hooked up with Marvel Comics and he came up with this fantastic idea where he would write the text for a series about the evolution of man and one of the Marvel comic artists would, would draw the... Um, and do the art, art for it. And he got paid quite a lot of money in, um, in advance payments there. And this basically went downhill and he completely conned them and he didn't produce what he was supposed to do. He took the money and in the end uh, they, they, they uncovered him basically and he was found out to be a complete fraud and his credibility in America really at that point just went. He had no more friends, uh, no one would trust him, he couldn't get work published, he was descending into alcoholism, he just married um, um, or just got together with, with an Irish uh, woman who um, was also an alcoholic so they were basically codependent and he was he was at a really bad stage in his life. Um, then, as often happened with him, somebody threw him a, um, a bit of a life belt and a friend of his called Michael Froelich, um, who lived in South America, in Bolivia, said, Wood Hollings, I'd like to come to stay in my um, place there and tutor my son. Now, Hollingshead thought that was a fantastic idea because South America meant cocaine and Michael liked cocaine. So he disappeared off to South America and he lived there with Michael Froelich for a bit and he had he sent all these letters out about how he was going to start a jojoba plantation and this, that and the other, all of which were complete nonsense according to Michael Froelich. And there may have been some cocaine smuggling plans in there, but I'm, I'm not quite sure. Um, but he was drinking heavily, he was, he was getting more and more ill, he was getting very um, cross with his daughter when he spoke to her on the phone, and it all seemed to be sort of grinding to, to an end. He developed a stomach ulcer for which he needed um, hospital treatment for, and basically he died in 1984. Now, the rumours about his death, people have spread all sorts of rumours about his death, about him overdosing on cocaine or being murdered or not even dying at all and just doing a, you know, doing a Jim Morrison and flitting off into the jungles or, or whatever. But I finally tracked down what did happen. And the, the actual truth of his death is that he was in hospital waiting for surgery or post-surgery for his, um, his ulcer and his girlfriend smuggled him in a bottle of vodka, which he completely drank the whole thing, and it, it killed him, basically. He just 
it just you know affected his, his surgery and he just died so he died in in 1984 none of his relatives could afford to go out there to to either bring back the body or attend a service and there was no money available for his his burial so he was actually um interred in the german cemetery in in a, a city called Cochabamba, and he was interred in the german c uh, cemetery because that was the only one that was secure because other cemeteries would get grave robbed and you know he would have his possessions taken from him so he was he was buried there and you know i've seen that the i've got a photograph which is in the book i think of the plaque um of his final resting place and and that was it was the end of michael hollingshead as a as a physical being but you sort of brought him alive in the book i mean it is an amazing read and he's an amazing life actually and he he's a he he's he's fascinating baffling um sort of loathsome <laughs> you know, uh, sort of lovable, you know, it's all those things, uh, you know, together. I mean, what's your feeling about him, um, you know, Andy, sort of, how do you sort of sum him up? I mean, I suppose in a way, Divine Rascal, the title of your book, is is, is that say, isn't it? I mean, it's impossible to sum up, isn't it? But I think the most significant, one of the most significant things about him is that, well, you've written the book, but I mean, he's, he's kind of forgotten, really. I mean, he, he's known as the person who turned Leary on, but kind of that's it really isn't it i mean in the wider culture well that, that was my reason for writing the book because i thought the, the bit about him giving leary acid is maybe only like a tenth of the stuff that he did you know the, the rest of his life is equally as interesting even though some of it stems from that meeting and also because i wanted to try and understand him and i spent uh ooh, seven years i think it was when i started writing the book i thought oh this will be easy. A couple of years because, you know, I'll be able to find stuff out about him. But more and more kept coming and it, I just kept getting deeper into it. And it got to the point where I thought I was thinking like Hollingshead at some points. And, and it, it gave me some strange dark thoughts because I realised that he could be and was on occasion a very deeply unpleasant man. But the opposite was also true. He could be lovely and warm and kind and funny and and, and all those sort of things. And he was completely split into into these these two people. And I was looking all the time I was writing the book for a for a, a sort of a, a way of hanging it all together. And it, it sort of finally came when I realised that that what Hollingshead suffered from all his life from was what we now call the current jargon adverse childhood experiences and what happened to him in his very early years um, um you know the, the domestic violence in incident that he witnessed and couldn't understand the whatever he did that got him sent to to red hill school and that separation complete separation from his family and people who who loved him um basically just messed him up for the rest of his life because he could never get back to a childhood where he felt wanted and loved and all his attempts to do it despite his best efforts ended in failure and and i find that really really sad but but equally worthy of chronicling because the the you know the psychedelic culture is always promoted as being you know love and peace and everything's fantastic and groovy and everything but there is another side to it and you know Hollingshead himself was quite a sad tragic character and the effects they had on several other people who came within his orbit were quite you know negative and, and I thought you know we, there's more and more stuff coming out about psychedelic history and I, I always think you know we have to be truthful and honest about the reality of it and sometimes the reality of it was pretty ugly but that doesn't diminish his impact that he had absolutely I mean you know uh as you know, my interview with Tom O'Neill about the Manson um, situation, Tate Labienka murders, you know, I mean, acid was a very big part of that, you know, I mean, Ma Manson was using a combination of acid and hypnosis and 
Uh, I mean, you don't get much darker than that, you know. Um, I think also we do kind of live in times, don't we, where people are supposed to be either angels or monsters. And it's, it's you know, you can see that with cancel culture and stuff, can't you? You know, it's, uh, it's so characters like this, um, who would, you know, just difficult to imagine them getting any traction these days because, you know, because of their behaviour. Um, and he's, he's difficult to understand and difficult to work out, was he a goodie or a baddie? And, you know, why didn't the, the acid affect him in the way that it affected other people and, uh, and stuff? And I suppose one of the stable things in his life, um, apart from acid and, uh, and, and drugs, was his friendship with Leary. So just to sort of go full circle, did they stay buddies till the end? I mean, were they still in contact? And did uh, did Leary sort of still hold, or, you know, could he still light a candle for his old guru, acid guru, uh, Michael Hollingshead? Um, they certainly kept in contact. I, I, I don't have many letters from Leary to Hollingshead in the latter years, but I have many from Hollingshead to Leary. And they were obviously still quite chatted between themselves and you know Hollingshead right up to his final um I think his final letter to Leary which is like a, a few weeks before he died he was trying to encourage Leary to come and stay with him in in Cochabamba so there was obviously still still that link but you know Leary Leary was like in, in a way he was like Hollingshead in that he moved on from scene to scene and I think he saw Hollingshead as basically a dead end and had just you know kept uh, in contact for all time's sake rather than for anything else his life was a sort of psychedelic odyssey, and the you know the book it's a big book, it's a big life. Um, sounds like the sort of thing that should be made into a TV series. I mean, you, you couldn't possibly. It would make a great film. <laughs> you well, I don't, I'm not sure you could actually squeeze it into a film. It's like a mini series, <laughs> um, but it doesn't come to a particularly happy ending, is it? And I know that you spent time, or you've certainly uh, been in communication with Vanessa, his daughter, and um, it's, you said his sister's kind of. Not disowned him, but doesn't want to talk about him. I guess, which you can you can understand. I mean, uh, uh, and that. So, what does Vanessa think about him? I mean, what a dad. Well, this is interesting because when I sort of first got, I'd been in touch with Vanessa at the time I was writing Albion Dreaming in the in the mid two um, thousands. Um, so I got back in touch with her when I, when I said I was going to write a book, and she was all for it. And then as I discovered more and more negative things about him, I thought. Uh, this is going to be difficult and I really don't want to write something that's going to upset Vanessa because she'd had a bad enough life with him as it was. But to her eternal credit, she was completely magnanimous and said, it's all right, and I understand he was a sociopath, so you write everything sort of warts and all. And she was amazing in providing a couple of unpublished manuscripts that she'd written about her life with him and loads of photographs and lots of background information. And in fact, it's true to say that book, Divine Rascal, would not be what it was without Vanessa Hollingshead's um, in input. And for people who don't know, Vanessa herself is a, a leading American comedian. And if you YouTube um, Vanessa Hollingshead, you can find loads of her stand-up uh, com comedy shows, some of which are about her dad, <laughs> which are quite entertaining. Not always factual, but quite entertaining. So <laughs> she was very for it. And also, when I'd finished the manuscript and I sent it to her, I was I was terrified because I thought, she's not going to like this. And But yet she thought it was fantastic because she thought I'd been genuinely honest. There's nothing in the book that is purely opinion everything is in some way justified by you know some reference or some fact or some interview or everything so um you know i i think i did the best possible thing i could and vanessa appreciated that i'm glad to hear it actually it is a great book uh the divine rascal stranger tractor press an epic work thank you <laughs> epic life of a deeply deeply strange individual so 
Andy, thank you so much for walking us through it. Appreciate that. Yeah, thank you very much, Stephen. And I think, you know, let's come back. We've got to dig much deeper, I think, into the history of LSD, uh, particularly in, on these shores. So we'll have Andy back when we can. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. And we hope, of course, that you enjoy all our broadcasts on the subjects of counterculture. You can check them all out if you go to www.bureauoflostculture.com. They will soon all be on iTunes and everywhere else too. Thanks for listening and we look forward to meeting again next time. I was Stephen Coates and this was the Bureau of Lost Culture. <laughs>